Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Dr. Joshua Sanborn is a historian of Russia in the 20th century. And if you want to understand World War I from a Russian perspective, you simply can't miss his books. If you've listened through this season of Unobscured, you already know what an expert he is on imperial state politics and the nasty mess the royal family found themselves in. But Dr. Sanborn's books and his conversation with this season's writer, Carl Nellis, cover so much more than that. His scholarship is a deep exploration of the connections between war and politics in the Romanov Empire and the way that the bloodshed rippled out across all of Russian society, from high to low. So it's a pleasure to offer you this conversation. But strap in, because this train moves at 100 miles an hour and we're headed for the eastern front of the Great War. This is the Unobscured Interview Series for Season 4. I'm Aaron Mankey. For Unobscured Podcast, I'm Carl Nellis, and I'm joined today by Dr. Joshua Sanborn. Dr. Sanborn is Professor of History at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. He has been recognized with numerous awards for his teaching and scholarship, including a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities. In 2003, he published Drafting the Russian Nation, Military Conscription, Total War, and Mass Politics, from 1905 to 1925. And more recently, he published Imperial Apocalypse, The Great War and the Destruction of the Russian Empire with Oxford University Press. Dr. Sanborn is fantastic. His writing is great. I hope you go out and and check out his books if you're interested in really digging into the history of this period. Um, It's fantastic to have you join us on Unobscured. Dr. Sanborn, welcome. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start kind of from that general picture of your work, um, maybe with Imperial Apocalypse in particular, that you've written a fascinating book here on the internal dynamics of the late Russian Empire, especially the significance of the resistance to Russian control in the border countries, but all the ramifications of that as well. Can you say a few things about what brought you to this work in particular? Sure, yeah. As as with many scholarly careers, it sort of follows a, a, a certain kind of trajectory. Um, I, I got interested in Russia and in Russian history, actually, back in high school. I grew up at the very end of the Cold War, was very interested in what was happening in terms of arms control, disarmament. I was very concerned about um, the way the world was headed and the possibility of, of nuclear war between the two superpowers. I was um, firmly convinced that um, better better relations between the two countries were, were necessary. 
Uh, by the time I graduated college in 1991, the Soviet Union was ending. And so when I was in, in graduate school in the middle of the 1990s, that same conflict wasn't present, but but I certainly had already caught the caught the Russia bug. And I did have this interest in um in uh, in in thinking about security and thinking about um, uh, military affairs, uh, not from the perspective of a military practitioner, of an officer, or people that that work in in, in the Defense Department, say, but from the perspective of, of someone that wanted to look at at military affairs uh, through through a broader lens, through so- social, political, or or cultural lenses. So um, that's how I got onto the topic of military conscription. I have chapters in there, not only about um, about conscription itself, but also about women and uh, and, and women soldiers in World War One, about draft resistors and conscientious objectors. It allowed me to sort of think about a lot of the ways that that nationhood was constructed through the performance of violence, um, and so that was what that that book was about. And one of the things, um, as I was doing the research for that book, I realized that there was a real um, opening and a real potential uh, to write a, a book about World War One. Um, the centennial of World War One was coming up. I published this book on the 100th anniversary of the uh, of the start of the war and there were other historians uh, many other historians who were who were also developing projects at this time um, and I began this project as sort of um, yeah a an investigation of life in frontline zones I was really interested in the civilian experience what happened to civilians that were living in these occupied territories who were subject to deportations millions of whom became refugees um, were, were tossed back and forth between these empires and had this really interesting political experience as nationalism really sort of grew in the period too. Um, and so I moved from that to, to a larger conception of the war, not just of a, as a lived experience, but also as this moment of decolonization, this moment where European empires um, uh, were collapsing, the big land empires were collapsing, uh, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the Russian Empire. And what relationship did the, did the war have to that? In other words, was it just sort of the final blow, or was it something more uh, more substantial? And so that was, that was what was beginning to govern the way I then structured and wrote the book. Mm. And if someone who is not a historian or is not a specialist was to pick up Imperial Apocalypse, um, what would you hope that they would take away from reading it? So if, if that was the idea coming in, mm-hmm. what you discover? What would you hope that a reader would come away thinking about the relationship between the end of European empires mm-hmm. and world? Yeah, so in, in the first place, it was uh, a, an attempt to, to give, especially English language readers, uh, uh, the possibility to learn more about what the war looked like from the Eastern Front. Um, there have been many works actually written on the Eastern Front, but most of the the ones that sort of had a um, uh, 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 an ability to sort of look at the thing in the whole, um, uh, many of those were quite dated back to the 1970s. And uh, the archives had opened since then. There were a lot of new ways about thinking about Russian politics and the Russian Revolution. Um, and so this is a relatively compact way for them to, to get to know what's going on on the Eastern Front. So I talk about the political things that are going on. I talk about these social experiences, but I also talk about the military events um, and, and 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 all of these are, are tightly linked as I, as I try to show in the book that you can't actually understand um, what's happening on the front without understanding what's happening in the home front and vice versa so that's the first thing this sort of compact understanding of of, of, of the Eastern Front in World War one 
Um, and the second thing is to understand this relationship between empires, wars, and revolutions. Um, empires are not just big states. They're states that are built around the principle of inequality, right? One political society is, is dominating other ones. Um, and the metropolitan centers are privileged, whether you're in London or in St. Petersburg. And the colonial spaces are dominated, right? Whether you're in Ireland or in Poland, right? Those are places that, that you are not, um, you know, sort of experiencing equality in the, in the years building up to, to 1914. And this domination is enacted by the state. Um, and so when wars weaken states, as they sometimes do, and they definitely did in, in Eastern Europe at this time, you get opportunities for different kinds of political futures, um, including social revolutions, which we see in the, in the period, but also nationalist bids for independence. Would you briefly describe the role in that imperial context that autocracy played in Russian life? And maybe in Russian life and, and consciousness or, you know, mm -hmm. kind of a cultural history approach to it um, at the end of the 1800s into the early 1900s. How would you characterize the relationship between the czars and the people they ruled? And, and this is a little curveball maybe mm -hmm. on the question that I handed you, mm -hmm. but would you want to make a distinction between the relationship between the czars and the people in the center of Russia and the mm -hmm. czars and the people elsewhere? Yeah. No, <clears throat> this is a this is a surprisingly difficult question to answer. Actually, we, it's it's hard to know what the relationship between the Tsar and the people were. Um, uh, in large part, I mean, if you were right, there are no surveys, there are no polls, there are no there's no way to really get at this question. And so much of what we have is the representation of the autocracy itself for how it wanted that relationship to be, how it wanted it to look. And they had a lot of resources in order to sort of have that happen. Indeed, in the years building up to World War One, there are a series of, of celebrations um, that sort of um, yeah, they, 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 they heightened this, um, they, they, they were intended to heighten this bond between the monarch and the people. And these build up to the, um, uh, the, the, uh, tercentenary, the, the 300th anniversary of the Romanov dynasty itself, uh, in 1913. Um, and so they have big celebrations that always, always are trying to stress this bond between the Tsar and the people. And generations actually of, of historians have, um, have sort of accepted this in a lot of ways, uh, you know, have accepted this notion that, yeah, there was this thing called, um, you know, popular monarchism where the peasants, they loved the Tsar. They might not like their landlord, but they loved their Tsar. The Tsar represented Russia for them. Um, and uh, there's just not a lot of evidence to to support that. Um, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that it wasn't there either, um, other than what actually ends up happening in the war. And so my, my argument ultimately is that, you know, when you see this revolt against the Tsar, um, you start to get these signals um, and indeed these had been building for years that um, uh, that that peasants uh, who f you know the farmers Russian farmers throughout the empire um, are, are not satisfied with um, uh, with the Tsar do not look at him as a little god do not look at them him as their <laughs> as their little father um, and so you know, it, it's kind of hard to know that. Now, the relationship between um, the Tsar and ethnic Russians and 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 those on the periphery, um, that is certainly different. Um, and, and that's going to vary widely depending on where in the Russian empire you are. So nationalism uh, and anti-Russian nationalism is developing more strongly in certain places than in others, most notably in Poland, um, uh, but uh, also beginning to develop by the time we get to the 20th century in places like, uh, uh, like Ukraine and in the Baltic states. Uh, and even even to a certain extent, um, uh, uh, more broadly into sort of the Asian territories of, of the Russian Empire, too. 
Um, um, and I guess, you know, just finally, I, I guess if I were to characterize this relationship, I think the thing we have to remember is that this relationship is distant. The Tsar always wanted to see this as an intimate relationship, but, but it was a distant one. You know, most people, of course, never saw the Tsar. Um, and, you know, they lived their lives in their local regions, in these local contexts. And the Tsar was something that was, was very far away and, had, uh, and they thought had very little impact probably on their lives. Um, one movement in the prelude to mm -hmm. the collapse of the Russian Empire was the process called Russification mm -hmm. or Russianization. You write that it entailed assaults on churches, language, schools at the precise moment when the great reforms from the 1860s were creating conditions in which the social basis of nationalism could develop. Would you give us kind of a brief overview of, of Russification? Um, its relationship to nationalism, maybe, uh, and especially beyond the metropole of the Russian Empire. Yeah, sure. Um, the first thing we have to keep in mind is that the Russian Empire was created before nations were born, including the Russian nation. Um, so nationalism is a fairly late development historically, not just in Russia, but, but everywhere. We can see its early growth among elite educated populations in the 17th and 18th century, but it's not really until the late 18th century, and especially in the 19th century, that it begins to take off in Europe and the Americas. And of course, the Romanov dynasty had been founded in the 17th century. Um, and in the 19th century, it's at the same time that we're seeing not only the great reforms in Russia, which are intended to sort of create a, a, a more modern empire, um, but we see mass industrialization, we see the beginning of mass politics in Russia, and certainly it's wide expansion elsewhere in Europe. We see mass education take root. Um, huge strides in literacy and the ability of people to be uh, to be reading newspaper articles about about what's going on. Um, now, the political power of nationalism, including its ability to mobilize much stronger armed forces, was evident quite quickly to politicians. Um, and so you have all of these pre-national multi-ethnic states, the Habsburg Empire, the Romanov dynasty, the Ottoman Empire, all of them are trying to nationalize themselves over the course of the 19th century. And so their problem is, in a multi-ethnic state, as all of them are, as Russia certainly is, they either have to figure out how to fashion a multi-ethnic national project, that is to say a nation that is not founded on a single eth ethnicity, or to engage in building ethnic nationalism. In fact, Russia tried to do both, but it was this latter project, uh, defending the idea that the Russian Empire was for the benefit of ethnic Russians and could be defined by Russian characteristics in terms of language and church, that caused the problems of Russification. So in concrete terms, what Russification is, it's an attempt to, uh, to, to limit, let's say, um, uh, 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 Polish participation in politics, uh, to forbid the publishing of, of Ukrainian language texts, uh, to ensure that local schools, these new schools that are, that are building, are being taught in Russian with a Russian syllab with, with Russian curriculum, basically, right? So that's on a concrete level what, what's happening is they're go going into these regions and saying, no, you have to go to a Russian language school. No, the Orthodox Church is the preferred church, not, not, not Catholicism or Lutheranism as it, as it is for many of the populations, especially in the West of the Empire, or Islam in, in, in large swaths of, of, of Asia. They're going into all these regions and they're saying, no, Russian, this is the Russian Empire and you have to learn Russian this. Um, and you can see why imperial administrators might want to say, okay, well, look, Ukrainian nationalism is, is a problem we have to figure out. Let's solve it by, by teaching all these Ukrainian kids Russian history and the Russian language and maybe we'll, we'll sort of forestall it. But 
In fact, it was the opposite that took place. At the very moment, like pe people before the 19th century didn't think of themselves as Ukrainians. They didn't think of themselves as Russians. They thought of themselves as peasants or as Christians, uh, but they didn't have these, these strong ethnic identifications that, that, that linked them to these political projects. So at the very moment they're learning about this, their, their, their earliest, the, the earliest political experiences is one of imperial oppression, basically. And so this helps to generate these ethnic nationalists on the periphery. They had long tried to say, hey, you guys are all Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians would be like, ah, I don't know, I'm kind of a peasant. I'm kind of a Christian. And, and now they're coming along and now they finally have the proof. They're like, see, you're Ukrainians. The state is punishing you for being a Ukrainian. Now they say, oh, yeah, now, now I see what you mean. Like, I can't go to the church I want to go to. My kids are speaking some weird language when they come home from school with a weird accent, right? Like that, all of that becomes to much more... More concrete for them. And so as a result, Russification, which is intended to, to, to limit the spread of ethnic nationalism, actually helps to develop it, especially in these Western borderlands, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. This is where a lot of the Russification is happening and where you see this huge surge in nationalism at the end of the 19th century. And you write, this is later on uh, in your work, especially in 1916, about events in Central Asia. Um, do we know much about how Siberia experienced Russification? Um, yeah, so Siberia is an interesting case. Um, and, you know, what had happened over the course of conquest in Siberia um, from the 16th into the, into the 17th centuries, basically, um, is that there had been, a, especially in the north, the further north you went, they tended to be very small communities that got conquered and sort of incorporated into, into the Russian Empire and also settled by... By ethnic Slavs, again, there, you, there wasn't a strong sense of, there were a lot of sort of people we would now call ethnic Ukrainians who are doing this colonizing work out in, out in Siberia and, and elsewhere. Um, the more you got on the big rivers in Siberia and, and especially down towards, towards Central Asia, you, you, you had more uh, large scale and settled um, Muslim communities, the remnants of the Mongol Empire, basically. And, um, and, and those were places where they had a, a much more complicated time um, sort of dealing with these, the, the, this question of Russianness. And, and honestly, especially from the early 19th century, uh, the goal was, the goal over the centuries of the Russian administration was, let, let's not do things to make people upset. We don't have a rebellion. Uh, so if people want to go to their own church, fine. Who cares if, if Muslims go, go to a mosque? We, we're, we're not going to force them to go to an Orthodox church. They can go to a mosque. Uh, as long as they're paying taxes and they're not rebelling, um, you know, and their elites are basically on board, we're, we're, we're fine with all of this. And so, by the, you know, it's only in the 19th century, again, that you start to see these pressures towards, um, uh, towards greater... Um, assimilation in a certain way. And this be is, is more possible for the ones that are closer to, to or conceived of as more possible for, for those who are closer to the to the Russian Empire and had been conquered much earlier, um, especially along the Volga, the, the so-called Tatars, um, uh, uh, along the Volga River, than it is for the newly conquered territories in the middle of the 19th century in what's called Turkestan at the time, which now Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, parts of Kyrgyzstan. So so this region is newly conquered um, and, and this is a very special, it's, it's it's a colonial territory. It's it's treated um, as sort of, you know, as sort of uh, uh, the British would treat a colony in Africa or in Asia. Um, so starting to look in a little more detail toward war and revolution and war and revolution <laughs> again, um, would you say a few words about how the 1904 Russo-Japanese War and the revolution of 1905, well, in, in your book, you say it transformed the international balance of power. Mm -hmm. And we 
you know, when we're talking about World War I, when we're talking about the downfall of Russia, we have to understand the Russo-Japanese War and what changed in Russian life and governance in 1905. Can you talk about how those things were linked and, and what happened beyond the borders then of Russia? Right. Yeah, so, so the Russo-Japanese War happens at a very, uh, let me start with the international question first. It happens at a very volatile moment internationally. Um, you're in the midst of this huge arms race, which is going to culminate in, in, in World War I. The rise of, of new powers challenging sort of the, the preeminence, let's say, of the, of, of especially of, of the British Empire. The, the story of sort of the German challenge to the British Empire is, is, is well known. And we're fully in the midst of that by, by 1904 and, and 1905. But also you're seeing emerging powers elsewhere in the world, most notably Japan, um, uh, which is striving to be sort of the first non-European member of the Club of Great Powers. Um, at this stage, they're not quite there. They have, they have established um, uh, uh, dominance in, in East Asia. The, in 1895, they, they won a war against China, and the Qing Empire is, is, is certainly um, in the midst of, of fading uh, on the verge of collapse, which we'll do in a couple of years. Um, and so Japan is clearly um, uh, uh, the most significant power. And, and they want to be recognized as such. And what happens as China um, becomes a target of global Im imperial control, um, you know, you start to have uh, the, the, the push for concessions, not only among the British, who had had concessions for a while, but also among the Russians. The Americans now are, 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 are trying to take, take, take part in this scramble for China. Japan is is really trying to uh, assert itself as as a regional power and and hopefully as as a global power, and and this um, uh, the European powers are generally unwilling to to do this, and Russia is for a variety of reasons especially unwilling to do this. And part of this has to do with Nicholas himself. Um, uh, he had done a tour uh, before he became Tsar when he had Tsarevich in, in into Asia, had traveled through through Japan, held um, a series of quite openly racist views towards towards the Japanese, um, and and did not want to think about the Japanese as a potential um, uh, imperial uh, threat to, to Russian imperial power. Um, and this leads to a series of diplomatic incidents, and then finally to um, a surprise attack by the Japanese in 1904 upon the uh, Russian. Uh, Pacific Fleet in, in Port Arthur, and this results in a disastrous war for Russia. Uh, they lose; they have three main naval fleets in the in the Pacific, in the Baltic, and in the Black Sea. They lose two of them. Uh, the third one is bottled up in the Black Sea because they can't get through the straits. Um, but their Pacific fleet is sunk basically at the beginning of the war. They send their Baltic fleet all the way around the world. The Japanese sink it too in the Straits of Tsushima, um, and they lose almost all the well, they lose all the the major land battles. And so it's, it's a complete disaster. And what it triggers is this mass mobilization, not only for, for a military, for the military, but also a kind of a political mobilization at, at the same moment you have a political crisis in 1905. So it, it leads to revolution or it helps lead to revolutionary events. Those have also, you know, social revolution has been developing on its own track, basically in Russia at the same time from the 1860s onward. Um, and so you have the culmination of this political mobilization around social issues, especially with the rise of, of, uh, of important Marxist parties. Um, but also you have the, this, um, the, this international crisis and this all explodes in this, in this massive revolution in 1905, um, which leads to um, very famous events, one called Bloody Sunday in January of 1905, in which um, uh, peaceful protesters are, are shot by, um, by, by palace guards, basically at, at the command of the Tsar, um, and and it leads very nearly to the um, 
uh, to, to the end of the Romanov dynasty in 1905. And it's only because of the efforts of, of especially competent conservatives, especially one named Sergei Vita, um, who both signs the peace treaty, gets out of the war with Japan in the summer of 1905, and also convinces the Tsar to sign a new um, uh, uh, basically set of agreements with society that allows for the formation of a parliament that, that begins... Uh, sends Russia down the road toward potentially a constitutional monarchy. It's only that that basically cools things off in the fall uh, of 1905. And once sort of the the moderate and liberal opposition is is appeased by these by these constitutional um, quasi constitutional measures, then they can go after the left wing with in in, in earnestness. And then and th this is what Pyotr Stalipin, the, who, who will eventually become prime minister, becomes famous for is sort of helping to lead this repression against left wing groups who do not want to um, see peace in 1905. Um, within Russia, you write that that year and those events that you just talked about uh, flipped a switch in Russian politics. Um, and you've started to describe a little bit about what those things were. Um, could you just give a little bit more of a sense, maybe from the lived perspective or, or mm -hmm. however you want to take it, what it felt like yeah. to live in Russia at that time before the establishment of the Duma and then after, yeah. um, you know, obviously, like you said, uh, Nicholas and, and the government felt like they were making huge concessions and maybe there were others who experienced a, a big shift. Mm -hmm. What did it feel like? Yeah, no, this, and it and it's a very important moment because, um, look, the, the Romanov dynasty and the Tsarist autocracy, these were non-mobilizational conservative regimes. That is to say, they did not want people, even their supporters out on the streets, right? Their idea of what a public should do is that it should be quiet and satisfied. They did not want large numbers of people out on the streets um, uh, organizing for them. They didn't want political parties, even right-wing political parties. And the early right-wing political parties, the monarchist parties that form in Russia are almost, I mean, they, they, they say in sort of the organizing documents, we wish we didn't have to be a party, but now that we have a parliament, we, ha we sort of have to play this this game. And um, this is very important to understand because it's so different from 20th century politics, right? We can, there are plenty of military dictatorships and other, and especially fascist dictatorships that rely on public mobilization, right? That have these big, you know, torchlight rallies. I mean, you think about what Hitler's doing in, in the thirties. I mean, it would have made Nicholas's skin crawl to think of all those people out there being mobilized for political ends. Um, that's not what, you know, the only way he wanted them, as we used to see at the beginning of the war, is sort of praying with him at a moment and then saying, go do your thing, right? So that that's his vision of politics is that power comes from him and he gives it to other people, not that it flows up from the streets, not that it flows up in any, and he's sort of, uh, sort of, sort of part of that mobilizational process. Um, and so they had consistently tried to thwart that mobilization. So what we see, when we see in 1905 that we see actually revolutionary activities, many, many cities in the Russian empire, you have these mass demonstrations, you have pitched battles between revolutionaries and, and policemen. You have large meetings pressing for constitutional change. You have people talking about elections and political parties and, and you know, recruiting people, all that stuff. It's just a different mode of politics. It's modern politics. It's mobilizational politics. And, and that's completely different from what the Tsars had tried to, had tried to have over the previous, you know, <laughs> not only the previous 300 years, but, but, but going, going back even further, of course. So, so that's the switch that gets flipped. Now we're in an area 
era of mobilizational politics. And that's really going to inform what happens in World War I, um, uh, because immediately uh, upon the declaration of war, most of the Tsar's um, people, led by military men who had been pushing for a mobilizational um, uh, uh, structure for years, for reasons I can go into if you'd like, but they had really wanted this sort of active mobilization and enthusiasm on the part of the population. Um, now when war gets declared in 1914, they say, great, let's mobilize. We need to mobilize everybody. And so this old autocratic dream of just sort of controlling things from above um, is fundamentally destroyed in the very first day of the war. And the last person to come to realize this actually is Nicholas himself. And that's one of the things that, that leads to the problems at the end of the, at the, end of the regime. So you mentioned that one of the things that happens here is the establishment of the parliament, the mm -hmm. Duma. Um, could you talk a little bit about what it was? How did it work? What, what's, what's the Duma when it gets set up? Yeah, it's a very troubled early history in particular, because again, you know, not only Nicholas, but many in the administration sort of have this belief that at heart, most people want to be uh, good subjects of the Tsar. They, they, they're going to want to vote for parties that, that, that are supportive of them, that the people are behind them, in other words. That's, that's what they want to believe. And there's just all these rabble-rousing revolutionaries out there. Um, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. So they're saying, oh, all these rabble-rousing Jewish revolutionaries out there. And once the true Russian people have their voice, you know, they're going to they're gonna vote for us. They're still a little worried about it. They don't like city dwellers very much. And so they create this system in which more power is given basically to rural areas. And those rural areas are also dominated by, by the nobility, by landowners. It's not one person, one vote. You vote in a certain curia in which, you know, so, you know, let's say the peasants in a region get one um, uh, representative and the nobles in a region get, get one representative. Well, you know, there's, you know, 95% peasants and 5% nobles. And, they, and so it's not an equal sort of relationship there. And so you end up with many, many more nobles. And there's also an upper house of, of parliament that is, um, uh, half of it is appointed by the Tsar and the other half is based on sort of uh, jobs that are also basically highly sort of Tsar's driven. So a guaranteed conservative um, uh, upper house and, and pro-monarchist upper house as well. With all of that said, they get the first Duma elections and um, the people vote for um, moderate or left-wing parties uh, overwhelmingly. And you have this huge conflict um, over basic things like land reform. And land reform obviously is, uh, is just sort of code for saying we're going to take the land from the landowners and give it to the peasants that are working it. Um, so the landowners hate that idea, but but the Duma wants to do it. So they disband the first Duma. The second Duma, they, 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 they do the same thing. Um, it, it doesn't get much better, even though they try to ban many of the parties th this time. And the second Duma. Um, and, and that also doesn't work. And so it's only with the third Duma, and this again is, is something that Pyotr Stolypin um, accomplishes uh, in, in, in 1907. Um, he says, okay, we're going to switch this, <laughs> the electoral system even more. We're going to weigh it even more in favor of people that we, we know are going to vote for us. And then they get even then, you know, it's sort of a moderate system. Sort of the the, the it's moderates that are that are um, that are at the heart of that system. And left wing parties are almost complete, but not completely, but almost completely marginalized. And right wing parties get get much more get much more voice in both the third and the fourth Dumas. Um, and and those again are going to last all the way. The fourth Duma is the one that that is going to uh, be be in place throughout the war. Well, and this speaks really to what you were saying earlier about. Um, how, not knowing how, what the people actually thought of the czar, um, that when you when you finally get elections, the Duma ends up looking like people who want to take land away from yes. the established. <laughs> 
Yeah, hundred percent. When you ask people, um, do you want rich people to continue to run the land, or do you want to farm your own land? It's not. It's not unclear what they're going to vote for. So they're they're definitely uh, anti-monarchist at that point. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, Stilipin. Mm -hmm. You and 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 other historians have have talked about him as mm -hmm. the most important political figure of this period. Um, who was he, and what was his role in governing the Russian Empire at this point? Yeah, I mean, Stolypin is, is a really interesting figure. Um, a, a lot of people end up becoming bureaucrats in the over the course of the Russian Empire uh, of varying levels of talent because this was not, um, I mean, no system is a pure meritocracy, but the Russian imperial bureaucracy definitely wasn't. Um, connections played a large role. Um, you know, whether, you know, you sucked up to the Tsar enough played a large role. All of these things over time meant that you had you know, quite a hodgepodge of, of abilities. Uh, in that spectrum, Stilipin was unusually talented, unusually competent, um, and uh, and this um, this helped account for for his importance in in the short period, four or five years, in which he's 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 prime minister um, in, uh, in, uh, in this quasi constitutional system. Uh, he's assassinated in in 1911, um, and I'll talk about that in, in just a second. He comes from the imperial borderlands. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's, he, he has um, in Lithuania and Belarus, he has positions as he sort of moves around the, um, uh, the, the sort of um, system by which bureaucrats sort of move from post to post. But he's actually in, in, in Russia, in Saratov, uh, in the 1905 revolution, and he again distinguishes himself in 1905, uh, not only by sort of competence, but also his, his brutality against, uh, against left-wing revolutionaries. And, and so it's going to be this mix for him of, of, on the one hand, being sort of a competent bureaucrat, but also his reputation as being uh, sort of um, especially anti-left-wing and willing to use force against them, that is going to endear him in a certain way to the to to, to the administration and, and briefly to the Tsar himself, and and this is going to allow him the ability to try to put forward reforms in the period from 1907 to 1911, uh, which are really quite important ones. Stilipin, at the end of the day, is a Russian nationalist, um, and nationalism is a mass mobilizational structure of the kind that I talked about before. So Stilipin is trying to figure out how can we incorporate nationalism into this empire. Empire, make it more um, participatory, um, but also not completely alienate all the non-Russians. Um, it's a really difficult task, um, but he knows, and, and he's a modern politician. He, he builds, uh, he, he solicits interest groups. He makes sure he has their support at various times for particular programs and, and, and not others. So, you know, he, he's trying to play this politics all the time, both with the Duma and with other people within the, the, the Tsarist administration. So, for instance, their educational reforms, he's moving towards the idea of, of universal uh, mass education. The most famous one is an agricultural reform in which he wants to break up the Russian commune and build a system of basically independent family farmers, sort of like the American Midwest in a certain way, um, you know, and, and, and break up the old Russian commune uh, as a way of sort of stimulating agricultural capitalism uh, and, and strengthening Russians. But he also has a series, especially in Poland, of, of attempts to make sure that that Polish nationalists and and also other kinds of nationalists don't get too much power, and so he's he's always forwarding a Russian nationalist line there, um, and he's also the author of of several military reforms that that are that that are also of uh, of importance as he realizes the importance of 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 the growing arms race and the likelihood uh, of of a European war in the near future. So Stolypin is doing all of these things. Um, 
and he he has already earned the hatred of the left, but he's also now earning the displeasure of the Tsar and many conservatives because he is pushing a quite a dif different system than the one that they are imagining, and he is also running afoul of entrenched interests <laughs> within within the Tsarist um, bureaucracy, right? These people that get sort of um, sweetheart deals in, in terms of state budgets, and he's pushing other budgetary budgetary priorities, for instance, um, and so. He begins to be seen as this sort of um, as an outsider who's causing more trouble than is necessary, and um, so he's already lost the faith of the Tsar by the time that he's assassinated in Kiev at the uh, Opera House in Kiev in, in 1911. Um, and so, w and so there's sort of a sigh of relief, almost an audible sigh of relief from the Tsar when he's when when he's assassinated. Not that he wanted to see him assassinated, but um, there's a sigh of relief because now he can go back to sort of. A much more traditional set of prime ministers who are basically just going to be yes men for, uh, for him, right? That are going to be, be traditionally sort of subservient in a way. And, and Stalipa was clearly an independent political force that um, that made the Tsar nervous. Um, so you mentioned that Stalipin's attempts not to alienate, you know, non-ethnic mm -hmm. Russians to think about. Uh, how to keep the periphery functioning without mm -hmm. revolution building up. Um, that's contrasted with what Nicholas and Alexander thought of the territories at the center of their vast domain, mm -hmm. right? Versus, say, Ukraine and Poland, Siberia, mm -hmm. the Urals, things <laughs> west or Europe. Um, if, if Stalipin was really worried about not alienating people, mm -hmm. what did Nicholas and Alexander think? What do we know about? How how much of a contrast that was with the way the czars thought? Yeah, um, you know, Nicholas and Alexander didn't want to um, didn't want to alienate people either. But again, in this traditional view, um, people just should just be loyal subjects of their monarch, regardless of what ethnicity they were. Um, and and sort of organizing the monarchy around a national basis was um, uh, was kind of problematic for them in some ways. I mean to be, I mean, in sort of racial terms, ethnic, the racial ethnic term, which people were increasingly using now by the early 20th century, over the course of the 19th and 20th century, um, much of the Romanov family was, was German. Uh, you know, virtually all of the Tsars uh, uh, over the course of the 19th century had chosen brides from, from the German principalities and then, and then from, from Germany itself. Uh, and so many of them had, 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 had German mothers, and this had been going back for again for for generations, um, and and this was starting to become a problem for them, right? Uh, Alexander would would eventually be sort of be criticized for being pro-German because she had this German background, um, but it's not the way that earlier dynasties thought. Of course, you would marry someone from another. You wouldn't marry one of your own princes or princes uh, or, or princesses because that would just complicate your domestic affairs. You find royalty or uh, elsewhere that that. That's where you're going to find your um, your bride if you are um, if you're the heir to the throne, and so it wasn't a problem. But but increasingly it is becoming a problem. And so again, you're seeing this distinction as, as Nicholas and Alexandra think about um, Poland and, and Ukraine. They think, well, the Poles should be grateful to us. We're saving them from the Germans, and and the Armenians and the Georgians should be happy that that they're not overrun by Turks and Ukrainians in, in their view are just sort of uh, Russians with a weird accent, you know, like that, they, that was sort of their, their view of the world and, 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 and the notion that these, um, uh, uh, you know, that there might be legitimate in certain senses, national movements that you had to deal with as a politician in the way that Stalipin was dealing with them was, um, uh, was problematic for them. 
Uh, so, so again, these are, and, and again, it's not as if Stilipin was giving a lot of concessions. Uh, you know, his, his famous slogan was that um, uh, you need to build a great Russia. This was going to be a Russian empire with Russianness at its center, but again, with an administrative awareness that, that other political forces were out there that needed to be dealt with. Mm. You mentioned earlier the tercentenary celebrations mm -hmm. for the Romanov. Um, can you say a few more things about that? What did they think they were doing with that? Yeah. How significant did they think it was? Uh, and But what did they actually signal to the various factions in Russian life at the time, whether mm -hmm. we're talking about peasants or administrators or regional, you know, uh, or, or the people in their court internationally? Mm -hmm. How significant were the tercentenary celebrations to the various parties of it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a an attempt, as I sort of mentioned earlier, it was an attempt to have their vision, their narrative of the relationship of the Tsar and the people, one that they believed in themselves, be enacted for them in front of them. And and when much of this happened, you know, there, there's a great article uh, by a historian named Richard Wartman called "Invisible Threads" about uh, um, about these celebrations, and in particular about the Tsar's visit to visit to Kostroma, um, a city not not too far from from Moscow, in which you have these big celebrations and the nobility welcome you, and there's crowds of cheering peasants. This is exactly what Nicholas wanted to see, and it's, he's able to convince himself that that this is um, uh, that this is the political reality, and so it's dangerous in a certain way, right? When you when you start using your own product. Uh, but he had always sort of used his own product, right? He, he was always imbuing himself with this notion that he was a popular um, uh, Russian Tsar and that Tsars don't get their authority by being voted or, or surveyed. But, but it's just this mystical thing. You're born with it and then, and then the, and the peasants recognize it. And it helps to, to reinforce that. Now, there, there is, uh, you know, Wartman also points out in this article, you know, that there are those that are critical of this and saying, you know, you need to, you, you need to be have a more complicated sense of what politics actually looks like um, if you're going to understand this, because many people are not happy with this. Indeed, some some of the nobility boycott the visit. They're not really visible uh, to, to him at that moment because, you know, there are big problems and, uh, and, and sort of having these big parades is not solving them. And there's a point when King Hakon of Norway, who, of mm -hmm. course, was a relative, I think, you know, <laughs> yeah. all those related to each other. Uh, and I, this was reported widely in the in the U.S. press at the time, and I just found it so mm -hmm. fascinating that one of his royal relatives was saying, "If you want to stave off real trouble, you know, he's thinking revolution, mm -hmm. you've got to let Poland have independence. You've got to mm -hmm. let the little Russians, you know, mm -hmm. Ukraine, have independence, and you've got to institute these reforms." How would how would Nicholas have received something like mm -hmm. that? I mean, we kind of know he did nothing yeah. along those lines. So we kind of know how he received them, but it would be great to have you just say, "How would Nicholas have received that from another?" monarch who's telling him, hey, institute some democratic reforms. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, I mean, it's important to understand that when 1914 comes along, it's, it's at, you're already having sort of a, a early crest of this decolonizing process. Uh, you're seeing it already in the Balkans. Um, uh, you know, there are two Balkan wars that precede um, uh, World War I, and, and, and you see the Ottoman Empire being pushed out, uh, not only and, and not not in favor of other empires, but in favor of new nationalizing states like Serbia and Bulgaria. Um, uh, so in you're seeing the same thing in Britain. Uh, the home rule debate over Ireland is feverish in the in the months leading up to, to, to 1914. And this is the kind of thing that was being proposed. And I think this is what Hawken is saying too, right? Give home rule, not necessarily independence to Poland and Ukraine, but home rule to them and, and try to make some concessions to have uh, uh, um, something other than sort of a completely Russian dominated state. Give some 
voice to your uh, to your constituents, and this fell on um, welcome ears not um, not among the Tsar uh, uh, and his family, but but among others in the Russian political system who did see this as, and especially for centrists and left wing centrists, the Cadet Party, the Constitutional Democratic Party, this was their vision. Uh, they, they were pushing what that we would eventually call federalism, um, uh, a federal solution to empire, which is to say, okay, we realize that people don't like the empire because Russia has dominated all of you, but what if we had a multi ethnic state in which everybody had had um, sort of regional representation and authority within their own regions, some sort of federal solution. And this becomes the dream of many who don't want to give up on the idea of a, of a large Russian state, but want to acknowledge that there are um, legitimate political demands by, by other ethnic groups within the state. And, and that's kind of the direction that I think Hawken is suggesting. And again, that's not something that, that, that Nicholas uh, is inclined to, to want to want to do. Uh, the difficulty is that Nicholas himself, um, starting in 1914, become, begins to play a much larger uh, role in, in developing ethnopolitics, to, to encouraging the idea that you should mobilize around your ethnicity. And so um, he, he tries to do some of that in the midst of the war as well. So, and this is, this is the toxic combination that explodes over the course of the war. Mm. Could you say a few more words on that toxic combination? Mm -hmm. What's going through and, and why is it so bad? Yeah. So, the first thing many of these empires do, they're bordering each other, right? Many of them have the same ethnic groups on either side of the, let's take Ukrainians, for instance. There are Ukrainians in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there are Ukrainians in the, in the Russian Empire. Um, you know, there are Poles in the German Empire, there are Poles in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there are Poles in the Russian Empire. So the first thing they think of is, okay, let's, let's leverage this nationalism. Let's try to defeat our enemy by leading to revolution. So we're going to try to encourage Poles in the Russian Empire to push for independence if you're in Germany and vice versa. The Germans try to convince um, uh, Islamic leaders all over the world that they need to launch a jihad against the British and Russian empires. That doesn't go anywhere really. But, but the idea is let's stimulate nationalism, ethno-nationalism as a way of undermining empire. The problem is, of course, you are also in a multi-ethnic empire. The Poles are also living in Germany. So like, if you're going to have an independent Poland, you're also, and, and the other side is also doing that, right? So POW camps get, get aligned around ethnic groups and you send them back into their, <laughs> into their countries to try to be subversives. And so they, all of them mobilize nationalism um, and it helps. I mean, nationalism grows immensely over the course of the war and all of these empires collapse at the end of the war and they helped it happen because this is the explosive combination. They, because they had to mobilize and because they thought that nationalism was the most powerful mobilizational tool, they encouraged nationalism, which is anti-imperial at its, at its core, and that, that helps break all these empires apart. Mm. Um, before, you know, on the, on the road to war, you note that Russian politicians wanted to avoid war. Uh, you include Nicholas in this, mm -hmm. of course. You, you even write uh, that he was kind of primary among the people who thought war would be a bad thing. Um, can you say a little bit about how each of these, you know, maybe different levels of the, of the state, of the Russian state, Duma, Nicholas. Um, why, did they, why did they want to avoid war? Yeah, uh, all of them thought that war was not in their interest, especially in the short term. Uh, there, there's no real lobby for war in, in the Russian empire. They're, they're all very, look, we've already discussed 1905. The, the last war had almost led to the end of the regime. Um, it caused a lot of problems. They all knew that it caused problems. They were trying, they had a, a large military expansion plan that was just underway. Um, they were going to be much more st strong in five years than they were, you know, in 1914. This was one of the reasons, by the way, that Germany wanted to launch war in 1914. because they also knew that, that, that Russia was going to be much stronger as time went on. Um, 
so they didn't want any they didn't want any <laughs> any part of uh, of the war. Uh, so the question is how how do they end up in a war that they that that they don't want to see? And this is a very complicated and much studied um, process that called the called the July crisis, uh, in which in the month before the outbreak of the war, all of this all of this wrangling happens. The short answer to this is that. Um, Russia believes that if it backs away, if it lets Serbia be conquered basically by Austria-Hungary, then they will have lost their seat at, at, at the Club of Great Powers. They're going to have shown fundamental weakness and they have to show strength. Um, and they knew what happened to empires that, that, that fell out of the club. Look what happened to the Ottoman Empire. Look what happened to the Chinese Empire. These are places that are being you know, colonized and dismembered by, by, by the victors. And so you have to remain a member of that Great Power Club. And they convince themselves that they have to stand firm for, for Serbia in order to do so. So what they try to do is they try to isolate Austria-Hungary from Germany, right? To say, look, you know, if we can make this conflict between Russia and Austria-Hungary, they're going to have to back, back, back down or we'll beat them one-on-one -on -one in a war. Um, we just don't want war with, uh, with Germany at the same time. So what happens uh, over the course of this, um, of this process is they want to... They, they want to sort of move from a position of strength. They want to say, look, we're going we're gonna to forcefully say we're going to defend them. And that's going to be a t deterrent because Germany probably also doesn't want war and Austria-Hungary can't afford to fight us alone. So we're going to try to divide that alliance. Um, so their, their early partial mobilization is only mobilization on the border of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, Nicholas and, uh, sends telegrams to, to, to Wilhelm saying, look, I don't want war. What can we do to avoid this? Um, Nicholas personally, again, do doesn't want to see this. I think both for just he, he doesn't much like war, but he also you know sees the problems that it, that it can create. Um, but at the end of the day, they they say, look, we can't back down at this moment, uh, and and we have to we have to mobilize because it's going to take us longer to mobilize than than it's going to take Germany to mobilize. So, um, you know, this this the logic of the end of of this process is that they're going to move towards a general mobilization, which they continue to insist to Germany doesn't have to mean war. We're mobilizing, just don't invade us. But Germany insists throughout the July crisis, any movement towards mobilization is a declaration of war. Um, now, many historians after the fact have also accepted that. They've said, look, Russia created the war because they mobilized, but it's not. Mobilization isn't a declaration of war. It's only the Germans said it. That's, that, that's the only reason that people are, 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 are taking it as, as a declaration of war, right? And this gets back to the larger question of why Germany wants war at that particular moment and why Austria-Hungary wants war at that particular moment. And, and, and that's, you know, obviously there's been a lot of discussion about that, but, but that's how Russia goes to war, despite the fact that there's no constituency for it within the Russian political system. And you've already said a few things about why you refer to World War I in your book as the Third Balkan War. Mm -hmm. uh, would you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, it certainly begins that way. Um, as I mentioned before, there are two wars that are called the Balkan Wars um, uh, that uh, were the occasion for getting the Ottoman Empire out of the Balkan out of the Balkan Peninsula. These happened in 1912 and in 1913. In 1912, you get all of these um, regions, all these nationalist movements, many of which have support from Russia, uh, being able to push the Ottomans off. So we're looking at you know Serbia, um, we're a greater Serbia. We're looking at um, uh, uh, Bulgaria, Greece. Uh, all of these countries, uh, Macedonia, um, uh, yeah, well, Macedonia is contested. Uh, Montenegro also uh, uh, being a part of this coalition, and they win the war quite quickly against the Ottomans. And this is quite clearly an anti-imperial war. That is to say, it's on the part of nationalist movements, and it's not saying we prefer one empire over another. We're saying the, that imperial rule as such is something that ought to be contested. Uh, so that's that's 
why it's kind of a decolonizing war. But as with many decolonizing wars, this just opens up a new question of regional power. And you get these new nation states starting to act like many empires themselves, most notably Serbia in this case. And this is what causes the second Balkan war between Serbia and Bulgaria over the question of Macedonia. Um, and so already you, you see that decolonization isn't an end. In other words, nationalism doesn't just come when the empire leaves. That just opens up a, the more interesting phase of politics, honestly, and the more, and the more violent phase frankly, of, uh, of the politics of decolonization. And so you have these first two Balkan wars. And the third war, as, as we all know, is triggered in, in the Balkans, in Sarajevo, with the assassination of the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. This is an assassination that is not random. Uh, Franz Ferdinand is in Sarajevo to oversee military maneuvers. Um, they have just recently annexed uh, the territory. Uh, they had occupied it since, since 1878, and they just recently formally annexed it in 1908. And you have these, um, uh, these young radicals who are inspired both by nationalism, but also by the Russian revolutionary movement, um, now looking to, to change the dynamic on the ground. These are not, uh, the, the people that kill Franz Ferdinand are not sponsored by Russia. They're not even sponsored by the, the top Serbian leadership. They are sponsored by the head of military intelligence, um, who is trying to run his own sort of radical paramilitary revolutionary movement the same time that he's, uh, that he's heading military intelligence. But Serb Serbia has just had two wars in the last two years. They're not in any position to fight Austria-Hungary at this point. And so they really drive these events. And, and it's, and it's for that reason that we have this as a third Balkan war. Christopher Clark and his well-respected and, 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 and uh, and really great book, Sleepwalkers, talks also about how you have this Bal Balkan inception scenario that, that develops in France, England, Germany at, at the same time over the course of 1912 and 1913, um, by which they begin to expect that war might, might happen uh, and which side they would take if it did. Um, and so all of these things sort of come together to, to ha have this third Balkan war then metastasize into a, a broader uh, European war and then, of course, into a world war. So in the, um, as the Russian army mobilizes and conflict begins, you write that many Russian officers were already inclined to look at the world through ethnic lenses in 1914. And we, we've talked a bit about that already. Um, but you, you then say that the war prompted the high command to almost universally deploy an ethnic grid of reliability. Would you say a few words about how ethnic suspicions fed fear of spies and over time motivated violence even against civilian populations, how ethnic you know, reliability and ethnic lines and divisions became so crucial to Russia during the war and the Russian military. Yeah, for sure. Um, the, as I mentioned, they, they were already well-trained culturally as well as professionally to think of the world in ethnic terms. Uh, virtually all of them were anti-Semitic, that is to say, uh, they held uh, a wide range of beliefs about what um, what Jews believed, what Jews did, and especially how Jews thought about the army. Um, they thought that on the one hand that they were um, subversive and pro-German, and on the other hand that they were all cowardly draft dodgers. So they had this wide-ranging and very toxic view of, of of Jews in the region, and they were they believed, uh, not completely unreasonably, that ethnic Germans, there are plenty of ethnic Germans living in the, in the Russian borderlands, uh, were going to be sympathetic to the German armies that, that were moving in. 
By the same token, their um, pan-Slavism inclined them to think that at the end of the day, the Poles would rather be part of Russia than part of Austria-Hungary or Germany. This was not true for the most case, but most of them believed it. Um, and so what, what, what they end up doing is, um, and th this was a lot of the archival work I did, was looking through the sort of cases of, of purported espionage in these frontline zones in the first couple of years of the war. They go through and counterintelligence agents, they will go through and they'll arrest all of the Jews, they'll deport all the Germans, and then they'll be surprised that there are still spies there because they're the the, the Germans, Austro-Hungarians, they're they're sending poles, but they're also just hiring local Russians. They're, you know, like the the espionage is 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 not con being conducted solely on, on, on ethnic terms, but that's the sort of grid of reliability that I'm talking about here. So when the Russian army moves into these territories, and remember, many of these territories are, are on the Russian side of the border, but you now have this massive amount of troops coming in there and, and they need to requisition goods, they need to make sure there's no rebellions, they need, need, need to make sure there's no espionage, they start basically uh, engaging in ethnopolitics. And this ranges from, you know, suspicion to deportation to executions. Um, your, your, your political stance is, is assumed to be flowing from your ethnic belonging. So let's talk a little more about anti-German sentiment. Um, how widespread was it, say, in 1915? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Anti-German sentiment really develops, well, it has a history um, already before the war. The German communities in the Russian Empire, t um, many of them were, um, uh, they retained their Germanness. They lived in their, their own villages um, and they were often quite prosperous. Uh, they're stretched out across the Volga River. There's many of them in Ukraine. Um, and, and also there are many uh, uh, German businessmen basically in the big cities um, who uh, who control a lot of the, um, who control a lot of finance and control a lot of manufacturing, honestly, in, in, in the big cities in the, in the Russian empire too. So there's already sort of this potential for, um, for social antagonism by, by ethnic Russians who say, why are these guys making all the money in our country when we're, when, when we're not able to, why are they dominating us? This is the, th the, the propaganda theme is German dominance, German dominance. How do we undo German dominance in our country? Uh, and this is going to get linked, as I said before, to Alexandra eventually, uh, the, um, uh, because of her German upbringing, but it, it has its roots much, much deeper in these social antagonisms. Now, when war gets declared and you have a massive propaganda campaign unleashed all across Europe uh, to sort of demonize your enemies, the same thing happens in Russia. And there are good reasons why anti-Germanism is going to spread quite quickly in the borderlands. The Germans do come in and in a couple of notorious incidents, as they had in Belgium, they raise towns, they, they execute civilians, they do um, a, a lot of um, brutal things. And, and this leads um, uh, to rumors of German bestiality basically spreading throughout, um, uh, spreading throughout the, the, the big cities in the empire too. This is going to culminate um, at the very beginning of the big Russian defeats in 1915 uh, in, in a series of pogroms in Moscow in particular, in which uh, uh, not only German, but virtually all or, or many um, foreign stores um, are, are, are attacked uh, as, as part of by, by popular mobs and looted um, by virtue of being German. And the state then moves uh, or uh, to also sequester this property or seize land and, and factories and such from 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 German speakers and especially from people who, who remain German citizens. Mm. Um, 1915 is also when we see a retreat from Poland um, by the Russian military. Can you talk a little bit about that? And who was taking responsibility for strategic decisions mm -hmm. during 19? 
Yeah. So when the war begins, um, Nicholas considers briefly um, going to the front as commander in chief himself. There had been a long tradition of thinking about the autocrat as the military leader of the country. Uh, but there was also a tradition, most notably in the Napoleonic Wars, of 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 delegating most of the command authority or nearly all the command authority to to professional generals. And so um, he's persuaded at that point to um, uh, to appoint a commander in chief. Um, he commit. Uh, appoints his his relative, uh, the Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, who had had a military career, um, who then assembles a staff, most notably his um, uh, his chief of staff, um, a guy named General Yanushkevich, uh, and it's they are the head of the so-called Stavka or, or Supreme Headquarters. But there's significant um, uh, there, there's significant um, influence also for. Um, front commanders and individual army commanders. It's a huge army, and, and each front has several armies under it, and, and then each of those commanders are, are also going to have are, are going to have significant authority. Uh, but ultimately, it's going to be Grand Duke Nikolai, Nikolaevich and his and his chief of staff Yanushkevich. Um, this retreat happened. I mean, and much of the 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 reason for this retreat um, has to do with with mismanagement on the part of general headquarters. Um, it begins uh, near the uh, sort of the the north end of the Carpathian Mountains, near the uh, the Polish towns of Gorlica and Tarnów. Um, but then it's going to spread all the way first, actually, kind of through through Ukraine before you have the big big blow into sort of Congress Poland or or, or the, the the Russian Kingdom of Poland um, later on in the summer of, of 1915. Um, and the basic problem is they're not able to mobilize reserves to to patch the holes in the line that get that get blown apart in a couple of these battles. It's this is um, a consistent problem in World War One uh, for all armies, which is that. Uh, they most of them believe that you have to c gather these enormous amounts of shells and break a hole in the enemy's line and then break through and force a retreat that way. But the problem is once you consolidate all of that, they can see you doing that. And when, when you start bombarding, they know where you're going to hit it and they retreat from it. And then you break through the lines and then the reserves come up to, to, to push you back. So it's quite frequently the case actually on all fronts that, that the first line of trenches is taken by, by enemies. This notion that they never get across no man's land is simply not true. Um, but the problem is that reserves are usually um, deployed with sufficient um, uh, uh, skill that, that you're unable to develop that breakthrough into something more strategically meaningful. And um, the difference in 1915 is that the Russians mismanage those reserves and they are able to achieve this breakthrough. And once you have this breakthrough, you you know, once you get behind the lines, uh, it forces a retreat all across the lines so that people don't get pinned in between in between two forces. So most of the retreat happens, um, uh, you know, not because you're being fought from uh, from the troops that are facing you, but you're worried about troops coming into the back of you, and so you have to flee backwards, and then you get harassed and chased um, uh, as you're being driven back. And this. It's called the Great Retreat in, in Russia. Uh, they basically abandon all of Poland, um, uh, much of Ukraine, um, much of Lithuania, much of Belarus. Uh, it's, it's an enormous retreat. It's the most significant um, uh, uh, offensive uh, in, in, in the European theater really throughout the war. I mean, you can make a case for 1918 and, and what happens on the Western Front, but, but that actually is less territory than, than, than you're seeing here in 1915. Mm. And... Um... You write that this is also the real fracture of the imperial political system um, that occurs during the summer of 1915. What were those events that, you know, so if 1905 is when that mass mass politics, that switch is flipped, mm -hmm. but here's where we see the real fracture of empire. What, what was it that happened here? Yeah. 
1914, when the war is declared, there's an agreement made by virtually all political parties, excluding the far, far left, like the Bolsheviks, uh, excluding them, uh, but virtually everyone else enter what they call a sacred union. Uh, they say, okay, we're going to quit politics, we're going to disband the Duma, um, we're going to let the, the Tsarist government run the war, and we'll get back to our political questions when, when the fighting's done, but we're going to let the Tsar f- fight and run this war effort, and his administration fight and run the war effort. In the space of uh, less than a year, they've run it into the ground. Uh, you know, there are massive problems with supplies. There's massive problems with treating wounded soldiers. There are, you have this huge retreat. Um, uh, you have the encirclement of uh, the Second Army in 1914 and the suicide of its commander. I mean, it's just a disaster. The, the, the Tsarist administration has demonstrated that it's incapable of effectively running this war effort. And that's... Um, you know, that, that problem uh, means the end of the sacred union. People, as patriots, have to say, look, we can't just sit here and watch this happen anymore. We have to get involved. We have to do something. And they do this in a wide variety of ways, um, from uh, forming, uh, you know, sort of relief agencies to building hospitals to um, a, a wide variety of ways. But they also do it politically. They start to say, okay, we need to get more involved politically. We have to have, um, you know, discussions between the Tsar and his administration and these other public figures, especially those prominent figures, centrist figures in the Duma, who can bring the country along and we can maybe start to repair some of the some of the damage that's done. And so this is the movement that happens over the course of the of the summer. At the same time, you're starting a, starting to see a reinvigoration of the strike wave. Strikes had basically ceased in 1914. Uh, labor unrest had basically ceased. But now in 1915, you're starting to see a number of big strikes again. Uh, many of them are being shot at by, by policemen. Um, so you're starting to see that social unrest building again. And you you get what gets called the, the, the progressive bloc that um, is supposed to sort of help the Tsarist administration sort of jointly now run the war effort. Uh, and what happens in 1915 is this progressive bloc gets built from, again, on a spectrum from the left to the to the conservative right. Um, and they say, okay, we're going to do this. And at the last minute, the Tsar backs out and says, no, this is an abrogation of constitutional power. I'm going to disband the Duma. I'm going to fire most of my ministers and I'm going to run this war effort and I'm going to go to the front personally to do it. So he completely rejects this at this political effort to, to, um, uh, uh, to, to work together. And now the people on the outside are left basically saying, okay, what, what can we do to try to save our country? And that's, that's the story of the next sort of year and a half is, you know, how do they continue to try to run the government? How how do they continue to try to help refugees while at the same time saying, look, we're not going to, we're not going to solve this problem until we get rid of the autocracy. Mm. And it's, it's in October of 1915, after all of these events, that Nicholas writes to Stanley Washburn, mm-hmm. we have no public opinion in Russia. And you've already talked yeah. a little bit about his kind of rejection of ground up politics and, and the way that he thinks politics should run. But you know, so I've asked you here to describe mm-hmm. what he meant by that, but you've kind of already given us a mm-hmm. picture. Maybe instead, how could he still think this? <laughs> like yeah. after this summer, after so much clear popular yeah. opposition, whether it's strikers, whether it's, you know, political parties uh, opposing him, his rule, how can he still think this way? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the capacity for self-deception among humans is quite high. Uh, you know, it's... Um, and and this again, he's for him to recognize that the that politics in Russia was modern politics, that you do have things like coalescing public opinion, that you do have pressure groups, that you do have constituencies, rather than a passive population that you run by divine right, it is is fundamentally something that 
if he were to accept that, it would mean he, he would have to accept that he's not a legitimate Tsar. He's not a legitimate leader. Um, and he's, he's unwilling to do that. Um, and, and he doesn't understand it, right? The, you know, earlier in this conversation with Washburn, um, Washburn is expressing his, uh, his regret over American politics. And he says, Nicholas sort of blinks and looks at him and says, I don't understand anything about your politics. So, like he doesn't understand how electoral politics really work, even though he's had the Duma over the last, you know, he doesn't understand about sort of why, why, why Wilson is, is in trouble or not in trouble. Like all of that stuff is just, um, he just says, I don't understand it. Um, it's, it's not the way that, um, uh, uh, that, that he thinks about politics. So, um, and that's what he means by no public opinion. It's not that people don't have opinions. He knows people have opinions, uh, he knows, but, but that there's no consolidation of this in, in a way that would represent the national will, right? That's what public opinion really means. And this is the distinction that begins to happen is that the Tsar believes that he by definition represents the nation. And what's happening over the course of the war is that Russians are understanding, no, our national interest, our national identity, our national community is defined by us. It's not defined by the Tsar. And in fact, the Tsar is, is alien to that and, uh, and working against its best interests. And when the, and when that finally gets realized, that of course makes it untenable for the Tsar to continue. Mm. So, you say uh, Nicholas disbands the Duma at the time. Mm -hmm. This wasn't the first time, right? How is Nicholas thinking about the Duma, relating to it? If he's saying, "Well, there's no there's no public opinion," mm -hmm. he also uh, you know kind of functionally says, eh, "There's no Duma either. I'm just yeah. going to run this war." Uh, can you say a little bit more about how Nicholas dealt with the Duma and and political functionaries below him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, the way he does it is by having his his prime minister at, um, deal with it and his other ministers deal with it. Um, uh, he doesn't want to appear before the Duma. Uh, when he does, he normally insults them <laughs> and and there's sort of bad relations. And so he, he wants to have as little to do with them as possible. Even the ones, the, the centrist ones, um, guys like Alexander Guchkov, um, who are basically working for to, to try to stabilize the system. He dislikes them personally. He he doesn't you know, he doesn't want to have anything really to do with them. And so he kind of insists that his his, his ministers do that work. And that's one of the problems in 1915 is that the is that the ministers have done that work and and all but one of them basically agrees that yeah we have to work together with them. And so. 1916, the Duma is going to meet a couple more times briefly uh, early in the year, and then in a very um, explosive section uh, session late in the year in, in in November, leading up to December, um, that um, uh, they're they're going to sort of force their way back onto on, onto the agenda, um, and so. Uh, Nicholas uh, contents himself with thinking, okay, well, I'm going to be at the front. He's actually not doing a lot of the military leadership at that point. Um, that's his chief of staff, a guy named Mikhail Alexeyev, who's doing most of that work. Um, and um, and frankly, um, most of the political work in the country is being done outside of the formal government itself. That is to say, if you're asking who's providing food to refugees, who's uh, building hospitals for soldiers, it's actually not the government anymore. It's it's these it's these uh, it's these public organizations uh, uh, that, are, that that are doing a lot of this work. And so politics has moved out of the state and into these sort of parastatal um, organizations. Um, you write that one concrete outcome of the offensives of 1916 mm -hmm. was that progressive projects for social renovation and mobilization could be married to political demands for dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Would you say a few more words on that? Yeah. Um, you know, there's this, what I'm trying to describe in that chapter is the development of a kind of technocratic progressivism. That is to say, this is not that, that, um, Progressivism defined by expertise, 
um, that you're going to achieve progressive goals by having experts determine how to run an education system or healthcare system or military system for that matter, right? So, um, so you don't need necessarily to have to deal with the messy politics of, of, of mass politics and elections and all those sorts of things. And so you're seeing these efforts to say, okay, we know best how to fix this war effort because we're experts, we're government experts, we're scientists, we're whatever. Um, and, um, and, and these movements to try to fix the war through this, through this sort of progressive technocratic lens um, lends itself in a certain way towards saying, okay, well, let's think about how we would run the government in wartime. And this is definitely not the majority view. I think most progressives um, want to see something much more um, democratic, frankly, um, than, uh, than the autocracy or military dictatorship would be. But within the military itself and within Alexei, for Alexeyev himself uh, as the chief of staff, the notion that, look, all of this, all of the Tsar's family, they're causing all these problems, um, uh, you know, so much sort of confusion, um, all of these sort of groups running around, we're not coordinating them well, we're wasting a lot of money. If we just have a military dictatorship that is able to uh, to consolidate the war effort, um, then we're going to be able to win the war, and then we can figure out the politics later. And so that's again sort of thinking about it in terms of that competence. Now, this is an assumption of military competence that is not borne out. Right? One of the points I try to make in the book is that throughout the military keep military keeps saying, "Oh, we we know best how to do this. If we run it, it's going to be orderly because we're the military. Things will be orderly." In fact, when the military takes over these state functions, they do a really bad job of it, and it leads to chaos in many places. So th this automatic assumption that the military means order, um, which is widespread not only in Russia, but obviously around the world, is, a, is sort of a, a dominant feature of the way that the military perceives itself, turns out not to be the case many times on the ground. And so, um, you know, I think a military dictatorship would have been um, quite disastrous. Uh, you know, there was already kind of military dictatorship in the frontline zones. And I described throughout the book about the problems that emerged there. So you write that on the surface, the period between the Great Retreat and the Revolutionary Crisis of 1917 was marked by stasis. But how would you sketch out the important changes occurring in Russian society while attention was focused on Rasputin, the chaotic roulette of ministerial appointments, he inspired in Petrograd, kind of palace intrigue and, and suspicion of Germans? What was actually happening while the, the kind of intrigue was taking the focus? Yeah. Um, a number of of things are making the lived experience of people in the empire much worse. So if you're in the front line or near the front line, um, you're experiencing a lot of personal insecurity in terms of violence. You're starting to see a breakdown of social order in many of these places, led in many cases by, by deserting or off-duty soldiers. Uh, but even far away from the front, um, one of the key things that happens over the course of the war is um, is a worsening standard of living driven by rapid inflation. Um, and uh, this is a problem that the Tsarist government can't get around. It mismanages its monetary policy, but it also just fails to come to terms with the um, big changes in supply and demand for various things in, in the empire over the course of the war. Plus, they attack many of the merchants and, and, and arrest them, right? Because, um, because they're suspicious of merchants and especially of, of, of Jewish merchants. And so this, all of this leads to, um, to, on the one hand, inflation, and on the other hand, um, good shortages. And so you're starting to see, by the, especially by the time we get to, to the turn of the year into 1917, um, uh, you know, bread lines, um, the discussion of the need for rationing. Um, you're starting to see the supply situation uh, deteriorate in terms of trains being able to, to ship what they need to on time. 
um, all of these things are, are, are beginning to deteriorate. And social relations are also becoming more and more poisonous. Ethnopolitics has done its role there. This wide sort of influx of, uh, of refugees and the difficulties of, of, of dealing with them has, has, has helped poison the, um, um, the, 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 the social relationships. And above all, this feeling that the rich are doing okay in this war and the rest of us are bearing this burden and look at how badly they're managing it. This is becoming more and more dominant among all sectors of, of, of society. And so, you know, kind of what, who Rasputin thinks should be the minister of, you know, of whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, minister of interior, let's say, um, that doesn't have a huge bearing on people's lives. What, you know, they're seeing things just just collapsing. And, and it's not the result of a particular minister or anything. It's the whole structure. It's, it's autocracy itself that has led them into this problem. Mm. Uh, can you describe the class dimensions of women serving as sisters of mercy mm -hmm. during the war? And we'll talk a little bit more about dealing with the wounded and, and how mm -hmm. significant the casualties were. Yeah. Um, yeah. But let's start with sisters of mercy. Who were they? And, and you write really meaningfully about the class dimensions mm -hmm. of service. Yeah, so women are looking to get involved in the war quite early, and 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 many of them quite earnestly um, um, throughout the war. And you know there are, are a number of good um, recent studies of of nurses during the war, most notably by Laurie Stoff, um, who has done the most extensive work on on them. Um, and so you you do end up getting people from uh, from uh, from a, a range of backgrounds serving in medical services, women. Um, um, throughout the war. But at first, there's this expectation that you want to get aristocratic women to do it, that, that you want to get um, sort of well-behaved, well-born women to, to do this, um, to do this uh, dirty work with, with wounded and, and naked men, frankly, right? Um, and, and this notion that, um, that you had to have a certain sort of um, uh, social background in order to achieve this well um, was, was, was prominent um, early in the war. Uh, for the Red Cross, m more than that, necessarily than for um, Sisters of Mercy more broadly. But that's going, over the course of the war, they're going to expand as the demand um, um, grows, it's going to expand more and more. And so that, that, but that, that question of the social background of these women, um, th that is not quite so clear of a class divide. Mm. Um, in the first two years of the war, more than 2.8 million men are wounded on the Russian side. 2.5 million of them require hospitalization. Uh, you've already talked a little bit about, about hospitals and who was building mm -hmm. them. And you write that the planned capacity of the medical response fell far short and the realities fell even below the plans. Mm -hmm. um, can you just say a little bit more about how failures to treat the wounded contributed to political opposition, yeah. czarist rule? Yeah, and this was, again, this was enormously widespread. What happens at the beginning of the war, uh, the scale of casualties um, surprises everyone. It shouldn't have surprised the Russians as much as it did. There were quite large casualties in the Russian-Russo-Japanese War. Uh, they knew what industrialized warfare could do. But still, it was, you know, a, a, at a scale that... Um, that they should have planned for more. But the fact was that, that again, the Tsarist administration was incapable um, of getting the job done. Uh, they, they, the structure didn't allow them to do it. The finances didn't allow them to do it. Um, and, and as a result, you know, they just didn't have hospital beds uh, at the beginning of the war. You had trains filled with wounded and dying men that were going nowhere, basically. There was no place for them to, to un unload their, their, their human cargoes. Um, and this creates an immediate crisis and, uh, you know, up to the very highest levels, you know, the royal family itself is besieged with uh, with complaints by, you know, 
aristocratic kids are dying in these train cars too. It's not just lower class people. And so, so people are complaining quite vociferously quite early and they still can't quite get it together. And this is when you get this public effort by the union of towns and union of cities. These are again, sort of public organizations. Think about them maybe as sort of NGOs or charitable organizations, something like that. Um, they're the ones that run these fund drives. They, they, they have these, you know, they, they go around and people collect money to build a hospital and and they're the ones that that generate all these extra beds and indeed these these extra hospital trains and that's one of the things that gives them um, uh, 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 sort of prestige moving forward and indeed the very first sort of um, uh, head of the provisional government after the Tsar abdicates uh, is the head of this union of towns and cities uh, because he has this political um, weight as a result of, of of these efforts during the war um, you've you've already said a little bit about food scarcity, food supply, bread lines, um, and, and how that kind of put pressure on the czarist government. So we can kind of step mm -hmm. by that. Um, but would you briefly sketch for us the events that finally did leave this, lead the czar to step down? Yeah. Yeah. This is the so-called February revolution. Um, you know, as, as, Folks probably know the calendar in Russia was was different up until 1918. So many of these famous revolutionary days actually take place in different months now. But in any case, um, uh, this it begins on uh, on International Women's Day, which was a relatively new socialist holiday uh, instituted in. Uh, as a result of the Triangle Shirtwaist fire in New York City, um, and uh, and in. Uh, again, driven by socialist parties and by labor movements as, as a way to sort of recognize women within, uh, within the socialist movement. And um, so International Women's Day is, is, provides the, the, the opportunity for many women across the city of Petrograd to, um, to go out on, on marches. And, and what they want to protest at this point um, is a series of things. The war uh, the Tsarist administration, and the fact that their lives have now been taken over by uh, increasingly long bread lines. Many of them are having to wake up in the pre-dawn hours to stand in line to maybe get a loaf of bread and then going off to a 10-hour shift and then bringing that loaf of bread home to their kids uh, when maybe their, their, uh, you know, their husband is also working or, or their uh, husband is off at the war. Uh, and, you know, and, and this has become a completely untenable situation. And they're putting the blame for this where it actually belongs on the Tsar and on the and on the war itself, they're they're not wrong about who has led them to this to this situation, and so you actually have um, uh, marches of, of of working class women in the working class districts. You have marches of middle class women in the more middle class districts of the city. But it's the one in the working class districts that that gets the most weight because they ask big um, uh, groups of workers from defense factories to join them. And when the defense factories also go out on strike and join them, it becomes a, a crisis for, uh, for the police in Petrograd. Uh, they attempt to deal with this um, uh, by using, uh, uh, by, by blocking off bridges, by doing a series of other things. They shoot into the crowd at several moments, but then they feel that they have to call in the army. The army has several barracks in the city and they have to call those soldiers up to help them police the city. And when they do that, it turns out that the soldiers are on the, uh, on the side of the protesters. You have mass mutinies among the soldiers in the Petrograd garrison. They drive the police away. The police throw away their uniforms. They flee on trains. They hide. Um, uh, they break open the jails. They start burning court records, all this stuff is happening. The Tsar um, orders troops to be sent to from the front to put down the rebellion in the city. Um, and uh, the first groups of those, when they arrive in the outskirts, the commanders quickly realize that, um, that if they send troops into the city, those troops are also going to rebel and then they're going to have a real problem on their hands. So they start to withdraw. And uh, when they withdraw from, um, uh, from 
uh, from those suburbs. The high command, um, uh, the Tsar is also coming back to uh, to this suburb town where his family is living, Tsarskia Selo. Um, and uh, they put his train on a siding uh, in a city called Pskov, and they convince him that he has to abdicate. Um, so it's at the final end of the day, it's his generals that that tell him he can can no, can no longer continue, um, and that um, and that he has to find some, and they have to find a way forward to to fight the war to a victorious conclusion without him. Uh, they think about abdicating in favor of his sickly son. Um, that turns out not to be um, uh, uh, feasible. Then in favor of his brother, who wisely says, this is not a job I particularly want at this moment. And so at the end of the day, he abdicates in favor of no one. And there, you know, in an autocratic system, there's no... Um, there's no system in place to sort of ensure uh, that a non-monarch takes place. The only group that has been elected nationwide at that point is the Duma, and they form what they call a provisional committee and eventually a provisional government that says, okay, we're going we're gonna to hold power until we can have a constituent assembly, that is to say kind of a, a constitutional convention. Uh, maybe we should wait to do that till, till the end of the war. Um, things are kind of crazy right now. Let's not have a constitutional convention. Uh, and that sets up the dynamic for 1917, where you have um, uh, this provisional government without any legitimacy um, now having to deal with this massive wave of political demands from, from, all, from all sides. Right. And instead of ending conflict, you know, rather than bringing stability, the following years see revolution, a protracted civil war. Um, but I think we'll cover those just kind of in the script. I'd mm -hmm. like to get to the questions and, and have yep. you speak on them. So, um, would you describe why and how the Eastern Front and the really significant events we've been talking mm -hmm. about today, write about, um, why have they been overlooked in histories of the Great War, of World War One? Yeah, I think there's uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, first, first of all, you know, we're talking largely about English speaking audiences here, uh, and there weren't many English speakers fighting there. And you know, there's there's an element of that sort of parochialism that that's always going to always going to slip in. Um, there's a desire to see where your boys were fighting as the most important places. <laughs> and that's true both of World War I and of World War II, uh, where, you know, where, where English speakers aren't fighting, those, those are seen as not as, as, as consequential when uh, in many cases they are. So that, that's, I think that's one reason, um, probably the, the largest reason why it's, it's not known as well. Um, there are no victors to write this war story uh, on the Eastern Front. Um, all the empires lose. All of right, the German Empire, the Russian Empire, Ottoman Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire. There, there's, there's no victors to, to write this history. And indeed, in many of these places, uh, uh, the, the system is, is hostile to, uh, to the regime that preceded it, most notably in the Russian Empire. Right? They, they don't want to tell a heroic tale of what happened in, in World War I. And it wasn't a particularly heroic tale, so it's, it's not that hard for them not, 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 not to have to do it. So, and they do have this heroic moment of the revolution that they can talk about. And so in Russia, the, the focus is going to be on the revolution. Uh, in Britain and America, it's going to be on, uh, uh, and France, obviously, it's going to be on, on, on the Western Front. And as a result, uh, the Eastern Front um, has, has traditionally been um, been talked about less, especially by, by English-speaking audiences. And that's too bad um, because, as I try to articulate in the beginning of the book, I think it's not just sort of another theater. I th think we see something really important happening here on the Eastern Front, which is this process of European decolonization, which you're not seeing on the Western Front, um, and, and, and which, but, but which is very, very prominent uh, as we see the rise of, of not only of social revolution, but also of nationalist independent movements and more generally of decentralized movements uh, of, of efforts to think about 
let's say, what a federal state might look like or, or these other ways of thinking about um, a world after empire. And so all of those things make the Eastern Front um, uh, uh, you know, really, really important. Do you think that the fall of imperial Russia and this, this breakdown of empire was inevitable in some meaningful sense? Or is there a better way of thinking and talking about what happened? Yeah, this is a, this is a long-standing debate within the field of of Russian history. That is to say, did uh, did the war uh, did the war delay revolution? This is one argument: is that revolution was about to happen in 1914 and it delayed it by a few years, or did it accelerate? Um, you know, uh, revolution and, and and the end of the empire. Um, I, I tend not to be a historian that thinks in terms of inevitability very much. It's it's not a very persuasive way for me to think about this, but it's. You know the 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 question of of sort of likely outcomes. I've thought about qu quite a bit. Um, and you know, once the war happens, I think there there are a, a relatively small set of of likely outcomes. Um, uh, I think it's quite unlikely um, that uh, that the Tsarist regime is going to preserve itself in a sort of non constitutional monarchy, non constitutional monarch form. That is to say. It's not going to go back to the way it was, uh, and uh, you know I think too much ha will have changed over the course of that. Even if, let's say, no February Revolution happens, let's say the Germans decide to to sign a negotiated peace in early 1917, I, I don't think you're going to go back to the to the status quo ante. I think the most likely outcome is is the one that happens throughout Eastern Europe after the war, which is a military dictatorship of some kind, a right wing military dictatorship of some kind. Um, that's that seems to be the the most likely outcome, and it very nearly happened in Russia as well. And in um, in Russia, what what you end up having is uh, is a left wing military dictatorship along with a revolutionary program, um, and that was obviously not uh, not um, uh, not not even inevitable, and it, I mean, it certainly wasn't likely. Um, you know, I don't know where you'd put the number at. You know, ten percent, twenty five percent. The Bolsheviks hit their number. Um, you know, sometimes it happens in history that a, that a non probable thing happens, and and I think that's what what happens. A, a number of things have to go quite right for the Bolsheviks to to to, to seize power in, in, over the course of nineteen seventeen. Um, but you know, again, um, I don't think that sort of I, I, I don't see sort of a, an autocracy surviving into the 21st century <laughs> you know if, if and you know you can see something like the British monarchy although it too is in trouble right now but uh, you know you can see something like the British monarchy uh, uh, you know uh, that kind of system but that would be so completely different from what um, what was present in Russia at the beginning of the 20th century it's not really the same thing mm. yeah and then finally taking some of what you've written and thinking about some of the, the people we're going to be talking about with this season of Unobscured in our program. You've written that state failure does not need to be brought on by anti-imperial revolutionaries. Imperial states can self-destruct, mm -hmm. either knowingly or in, unintentionally. And in popular history, a lot of times because the focus is on the person of Nicholas or Alexandra or Rasputin, um, the collapse of imperial Russia is credited to their personal actions, their personal limitations, blind spots, that kind of thing. So to what extent do you think any one of these people were, direct, were directly responsible for the end of czarist rule? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, the uh, when I wrote that line, I, I guess I have two quick answers to that. So when I wrote that line, what I was thinking about actually was the institution of martial law at the beginning of the war, which I think breaks the back of imperial governance in the borderlands. So that's what the first couple chapters of the book are about. What happens when you take these experienced imperial administrators and you remove them, or they remove themselves, they flee in many cases, and you replace them with completely inept, basically, uh, military uh, officers uh, to try to govern this, these territories. And what you end up with is economic disaster, um, uh, ethnic deportations. You get a whole series of really terrible things that undermine society and state in these in these regions. And so that's the process of imperial self-destruction I'm talking about. The sort of modus vivendi, even if it was a, an unpleasant one for Poles and Ukrainians, they were prepared to live with it for the long term. Many of them were talking about living with it for the long term in 1913. And, and that was no longer the case by the time you get to 1915. And that's largely the result of a series of really uh, bad mistakes that, that uh, are driven from above. Now, Nicholas makes those decisions. He's not the only one making those, de those decisions about martial law, for instance. Now, the question of sort of how important the royal family and Rasputin is, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see that. I mean, they certainly have importance. That is to say that Nicholas, at the end of the day, does make these decisions. Uh, and the decisions he makes um, quite frequently are, are, are ones that are going to lead them down the road to disaster. A better monarch, um, uh, a monarch that, let's say, had uh, if Stilipin isn't assassinated or Vita isn't, um, you know, you can think of a series of, of quite talented Russian politicians um, who might have helped prevent this uh, th this situation from 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 getting to where it did. Um, yeah, Nicholas is responsible for not allowing that to happen, for not promoting the that 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 from happening. Um, I think the sort of the criticism of Alexandra and then by extension Rasputin, a lot of it is wrapped up in in quite. Um, uh, I don't know the, the the best way way to put it. I mean, a lot of it is wrapped up, obviously, in anti-Germanism. A lot of it is wrapped up in in uh, in sexism. Obviously, uh, you know that that's a lot of the criticism that's happening for them. Um, but it also doesn't reflect the fact that I talked about before, which is that the decisions they're making in 1960 after Nicholas leaves for the front in 1916, let's say. They're not that consequential. I don't think it actually matters that much who the Minister of Interior or Minister of Communications is, right? I, it, I just don't think it matters too much. Most of the actual work that's being done is being done by people that, that they don't have control over, especially in the military. And so, you know, I don't see them as, as that important. Now, in terms of the loss of public faith on the part of the Petersburg elite, which is something important, the, the, the faith of your political elite is something important in a political system, it's obvious that they have an effect on that. So for sure, they have an influence on that. And that's why the, you know, that's why it's conservatives and, and ultra right right wing people that assassinate Rasputin, right? Is because they're the ones that are, are that are most affected by this, right? It's it's not left wing terrorists that assassinate Rasputin, right? Uh, he's irrelevant to them, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's it's the right wing uh, and, and the political elite that is that is that is most consumed by him. But to take a brief counterfactual, maybe if Rasputin never existed, does the Russian Empire collapse as it does? And I think yes. I I, I don't think even the timing is shifted by that. Um, so it's it's hard for me to see that he has sort of a large macro effect, even if his micro effect on the way that people discuss the revolution and the collapse of the empire is quite large, both at the time and then afterwards, because he's an interesting, um, salacious and, um, and controversial figure. It's, it's understandable why people want to read about him, want to talk about him both at the time and, and now. Beautiful. <laughs> That's great. That lines right up with the thesis. Statement All right. Good. <laughs> good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's what I have for us. And uh, uh, yeah, I do want to be respectful of your time and, and letting you get out of here. But uh, Terrific. Uh, this has been you. a lot of fun.
That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. When I went away and looked and honed in and focused on the very end of their lives, i.e. pretty much from when they were imprisoned at the Alexander Palace. And then I, I honed it in even closer to the last two weeks of their lives in Ekaterinburg in the Apatyev House. I suddenly realized there was a really interesting and exciting scenario there that had never been explored, which was looking at the family really close up how were they? What was going through their minds? How did they deal with captivity? What were the tensions being trapped in a house in Western Siberia, knowing that probably the writing was on the wall? Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane, in partnership with iHeartRadio, with research by Sam Alberti, writing by Carl Nellis, and original music by Chad Lawson. Learn more about our contributing historians, source materials, and links to our other shows over at grimandmild.com unobscured. And as always, thanks for listening. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. 
Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.